Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, so the topic is, uh, is death. And I feel like I need your informed consent to be here. So if you just like wandered in expecting something very different from that, I will not be offended if you uh, exit. But uh, that, is, that is the theme, death and the uh, mortality and the poignancy of life. So, um, I saw this, um, this story in the, in the onion a few days ago. Uh, you familiar with the onion? This is an important resource, <laughs> um, for Dharma. So, so it's a picture of like this kid, maybe like a four year old kid standing in a grocery cart being pushed what, by what looks like her mom. And the, um, the story, the headline is, toddler standing up in shopping cart, surveys grocery store like grizzled sea captain on whaling expedition. <laughs> if you've taken children to a grocery store, you're familiar with that, yeah? But the, what struck me about it was the, kind of parallel between that, that sort of grizzled sea captain on a whaling expedition and what we do in our meditation. Yeah, that kind of hunger and um, surveying the landscape and that kind of mode of acquisition and um, making something of the experience, almost like extracting goodness from the moment. And sometimes each time we sort of take a mindful breath, we take stock the next moment and ask, am I deeper, more concentrated, more wise or something like this, right? And that sense of, of um, yeah, the, the sense of just like this, this pressure to extract something or acquire something, we can learn to release that. Second thing, juxtaposing this to the, uh, to the whaling expedition. This is from uh, book uh, Nicole Krauss, um, Forest Dark. And um, also a clear parallel to our meditation practice. So uh, she writes, the narrator is a writer. And so she, narrator says, um, that evening I went to a dance class held in an old yellow school whose window frames were painted sky blue. I love to dance. But by the time I came to understand that I ought to have tried to become a dancer instead of a writer, it was too late. More and more, it seems to me that dancing is where my true happiness lies and that when I write, what I'm really trying to do is dance. And because it is impossible, because dancing is free of language, I'm never satisfied with writing. To write is, in a sense, to seek to understand. And so it's always something that happens after the fact, is always a process of sifting through the past and the results of this, if one is lucky, are permanent marks on a page. But to dance is to make oneself available for pleasure, for an explosion, for stillness. It only ever takes place in the present the moment after it happens, dance has already vanished. Dance constantly disappears. The abstract connections it provokes in its audience of emotion with form and the excitement from one's world of feeling and imagination, all of this derives from its vanishing. We have no idea how people danced at the time Genesis was written, how it looked, for example, 
when David danced before God with all his might. And even if we did, its only way of coming to life again would be in the body of a dancer who is alive now, here to make it immediate for us for a moment before it vanishes again. But writing, whose goal is to achieve a timeless meaning, has to tell itself a lie about time. In essence, it has to believe in some form of immutability, which is why we judge the greatest works of literature to be those that have withstood the test of hundreds, even thousands of years. And this lie we tell ourselves when we write makes me more and more uneasy. So I love to dance. In our meditation practice, we're often doing something more like writing than dancing. Yeah. And it's like each moment gets, um, is a new addition to the autobiography of me. Me and my meditation, me and my life, me and my pain, me and my longing. But each moment gets tacked on to the autobiography. We're writing something. We're writing the story of our lives, the story of me. And the invitation is instead to do something maybe more like dance. We make this gesture of awareness and leave it there. Yeah, we don't don't even hold on to the moment for uh, for a second. It's like the awareness touches experience, and uh, then something vanishes. And the heart mind awareness is available for the next moment in a new way. But that moment need not be integrated into the way we sort of stay oriented to time, to, to me, to you, to pleasure and pain. We, we actually surrender that. And to do that, we have to let go of this mode of acquisition, this mode of, of, um, of hunting, this mode of um, of of adding to to the the our biography, so we just let go into the moment. I read that a couple months ago um, at a retreat and. Um, and this young man followed me. I let, you know, the teachers leave the hall first. Then I, I walked out and, um, and this young man like followed me into the courtyard, into the California night, this gorgeous night. And, um, and it must have been professionally trained or something, but he just like explodes into this like totally exquisite dance yeah that looked like this blend of like classical and and then also martial arts like like this really beautiful and then bows to me and we go our ways yeah so uh i'm not saying that should happen now <laughs> but um yeah let's uh yeah may may our practice this evening be be like uh, Nicole's uh, dance there. Yeah. So all all the time before. You were born, um, plus 
all the time after you die is almost exactly all the time there is, yeah? And yet, by some strange miracle, we sit here together, we were born, and it's actually wild to to consider that. It's easy to acclimatize to the fact that I was born, yeah? But um, we shouldn't actually lose sight of this. And in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes said that phrase like this precious human birth, yeah? The wildness of having been born at all, of there being a species at all, there being a habitable planet at all. And yet we're we're desiring machines. I was just sitting retreat and it's just like that phrase like desiring machine came up, yeah? And in a sense as desiring machines like virtually every desire we have includes our existence in it, yeah? And this means that death is a very serious problem for us as a species, yeah. As, um, as a kid, I would, um, I would do this weird thing in my head sometimes. Um, I would first imagine that I wasn't born and then imagine that my family didn't exist and then that people didn't exist, the world didn't exist, time didn't exist, the universe never was, and then I would get super freaked out. (laughs) And it was like um, a little, I was like thinking my way into some little taste of emptiness, yeah? Like the contingency of all things. Uh, that, that in a sense, everything f- can come to feel like an accident having been here, yeah? And when I got into practice without, without something, you know, I was so not... I wasn't looking for practice. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was not a good candidate for meditation practice or spiritual devotion. Very poor candidate. And yet um, something grabbed my heart, yeah? And as I look back on it, I, I think without, without really knowing it, I got into spiritual practice because I could intuit the enormity of loss that any human being faces, including my own death, including the death of everyone I love. And I knew at that time, at age 24, that um, uh, I couldn't handle it and that, um, that I would need to cultivate my heart, cultivate a life in, in some way that uh, to open to the, just the, the uh, not even the, the kind of traumatic experiences that are so common, but even just the everyday loss of, of being born, of having a life, of loving people, and Diane. And for years before the sitting group that I was, just friends who were sitting together in the, the early morning, we would chant the five remembrances together to, to acknowledge the realities, you know, that I am of the nature to, to grow old, to, have, to become sick, to die, 
everything that is dear and precious to me is of the nature to change. I cannot avoid being separated from it. My actions are my only possessions. This is my legacy, this kind of karmic legacy of goodness, of love, of harmfulness. Yeah. And so in the Buddhist tradition, the, we sort of raise this question of our own mortality uh, because to, to clarify what's important to us in our lives, to clara to cut through pettiness and to find a way to uh, kind of consolidate our motivation to live wisely, to live well. And they have a kind of reverential, you know, really reverential status in Buddhist practice. Like this is a famous Thai, Thai forest teacher, Ajahn Lee, said, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. Now, um, this is such a sensitive topic, that's why I was saying, you know, um, sort of wanted people to be selecting into this conversation. Um, and although death feels very real to me, uh, I know it feels more real to some of you. And I recall the, the experience of, uh, I was doing the year to live practice. This is like 2006, based on Stephen Levine's book, A Year to Live, where you actually try to live as if it's the last year of your life. Uh, and it's, you go through as a cohort, as a group, and you write your own eulogy and read it, you know, it's like very visceral kind of evocation of death. And I remember at the time I was living in Santa Monica and I, my neighbor, the apartment next to me was, um, was a woman who survived the Holocaust. Yeah, was in the camps. The rest of her family was decimated. And, and she's asking me about, she's asking me about what I'm doing. And I, I started, I talked about uh, this program, Year to Live, yeah? And, um, and I remember she, she grew kind of like uncharacteristically hostile and sort of, um, you know, uh, understandably very dismissive. It's like, here you are, this young, healthy person kind of playing this kind of game, simulating. You weren't in the camps. You don't know. You don't know what death means, yeah? And in the decades since then, I, I've continued to reflect on this, yeah? And, and death has become more real. But I, I want to be very careful not to trespass on your own relationship to your mortality, to the people in your lives, yeah, to ancestors. I, I spent, um, spent some years as a hospice volunteer and um, a lot of lessons from that time, but um, One of them was just, just, just kind of how few things matter yeah, at the end and how few things actually provide some sense of refuge and the kind of legacy of our own heart that, that, that becomes really focal. Right? And, um, I saw people have good deaths, yeah? And I saw people for whom, in a sense, it was too late, actually, to start letting go. And so we sometimes hear that phrase, that strange, interesting phrase, a good death, yeah? And what I would say is, is having a good death 
that um, that starts now. Whatever our condition, whatever our health, that actually starts now. So, um, the life expectancy of of people keeps growing, right? It used to be 30 or something thousands of years ago, and now maybe 80. And, um, and yet there's a sense that even if, even if we lived to 200 or 1,000 or something, it, it still might not feel like enough. Yeah. And like, what is it about that sense of incompletion and what might give rise to actually a sense that life was complete, that it was enough? That to want more is just greed. And when I think about what, what brings a sense of completeness, I don't know, but I think about um, I think about uh, mostly about love, mostly about love. Yeah. To um, to know a love that is so deep and pervasive and undiscriminating um, that feels like part of completing the human condition. And to know the many chambers of the mind, to know how free we might feel. Uh, this also, I think, brings a sense of uh, of completion, like, oh yeah, my life, it, it, was, it was enough, it was enough. And we do this for ourselves, but um, we also do this for those in our life. And so I, I remember Gil Franzdahl, a men mentor of mine, uh, told this story about a student of his, a young mother, a practitioner, devoted practitioner, and with a with a family, with a young young daughter, maybe eight year old daughter, something like this. And the the mom was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, and she she knew that she didn't have much time to live. And for, for some time, she was, um, she was uh, very understandably very angry, very resistant, fighting with the condition, wrestling with the treatments, um, very, you know, resentful of that, that this picked her in some way. And... Uh, and as I recall Gil talking about it, it was like there wasn't really some way in to her and she was suffering so much. And at some point what Gil said um, was, it was like, it still touches me, but he said, he said, um, he said, you know, how you die will have a very enduring impact on your daughter, right? And somehow this shifted something for her. And her heart opened to her diagnosis, to the realities of loss, to grieving in a beautiful way. And, um, and when she died, she was there in, in a bed, and um, the... Uh, her daughter went out, knew that she died, went out, picked a flower, and brought it up to her mom's bed and put it on her mom's chest. The very different legacy, yeah, than the 
another death, yeah? Right, so we, we actually do this for, um, not just for ourselves. Um, now, I, I don't want to, to romanticize death. Um, so this is, this is the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould. So this was written in 1985 after, uh, I think, a stomach cancer diagnosis, which he lived for another 17 years after it, after this diagnosis, longer than was expected. But he provides a kind of, um, yeah, counterbalance that feels important. So he says, it's become, in my view, a bit too trendy to regard the acceptance of death as something tantamount to intrinsic dignity. Of course, I agree with the preacher of Ecclesiastes that there's a time to love and a time to die, and I hope to face the end calmly and in my own way. For most situations, however, I prefer the more martial view that death is the ultimate enemy and I find nothing reproachable in those who rage mightily against the dying of the light. When somebody gets a biopsy for something, I'm rooting a hundred percent that it's benign. Yeah, a hundred percent. And then if it's not, and at some point for all of us, it's not, then the heart enters a different space. So the, um, the existential psychotherapist, psychiatrist, Irvin, Irvin Yalom, they sort of like developed a psychotherapy that was, um, that yeah, postulated that these kind of core questions, core existential questions, including death, were gave rise to more psychological symptoms than our particular neurosis. It was sort of more like neurosis is a function of some of these existential pressures. And um, he said that... Um, he said, death anxiety is the mother of all religions. Yeah. Um, death anxiety is the mother of all religions. That it actually, this kind of concern about our own mortality gives birth to a million stories and that um, sometimes offer some consolation but are often uh, thin, thin consolation. And... Um, Yeah, for for many, I think um, the the fact of our mortality, like it seems to to rob us of our of our dignity in some way. But um, on the other hand, there's there's an argument that if if we were immortal, if we if we really could actually try that on in a deep way, if we were immortal all meaning would be lost. Yeah. And so this is a, a philosopher, literary critic, Hogland, um, who writes, um, for anything to be intelligible as mattering, for anything to be at stake, we have to believe in the irreplaceable value of someone or something that is finite. The recognition of finitude does not offer any guarantees will lead a responsible life and take better care of one another. But without the recognition of finitude, the questions of responsibility and care could not even take hold of us. To turn toward you, to focus our gaze on another and attach ourselves to what we see is the deepest movement of secular confession. We are turned back to our lives, not as something that is our property, but as a form of existence that is altogether finite 
and altogether dependent on others. This is not the end of responsibility. It is the beginning. So this this book is um, called This Life. Um, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, I think is the subtitle. Um, is an argument to actually more deeply embrace the 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 necessity of finitude if we are to have meaning yeah and part of what we do in our dharma practice is we we develop enough strength enough courage that we're we're willing to grieve And um, the truth is that for for most most every practitioner, um, the dar- the path of Dharma practice, whether we've had losses or not, uh, no matter how deep those losses might have been, or or the relative absence of losses, the path of Dharma and the unfolding of the heart the way this actually looks in the trenches of practice day in day out year in year out is something like a process of grieving to actually give birth to compassion the open-heartedness in the face of suffering to actually uh, begin to to develop insight to let go the unclenching of the closed fist of grasping, all of this um, um, can feel like grieving. And that's not even speaking of the the losses inherent in in our lives. And so the the growing pains of Dharma, the Dharma path, often feel, not for everybody, but for many people, it feels like grief. It feels like something is being taken from us, even if we don't know what. And that doesn't mean we're doing it wrong at all. But we actually have to develop the courage to feel our way through this. And generally, the Buddha wanted to be free from grief. There's, you know, beyond sorrow, grief, and lamentation. That was like the the highest uh, well-being, right? Um, But on the other hand, the, the Buddha, you know, perhaps grieved too. There's There's a sutta where two very close disciples had died and the Buddha's in a hall of 500 monastics and says like with the absence of I think sorry Putra and Moggallana um, with the absence of these two dear Dharma friends it feels as if this hall were empty and then and then the sutta goes on to say but the Buddha did not grieve and did not suffer. Yeah, and I was like, don't do that, you know? Like, why do you have to do that? You know, I, I, because I, I don't know about you, and this this um, open to different views, of course, but it's like, uh, for me, like, I want my Buddha to grieve. I I can very easily, I don't live it, but I can easily imagine a life that is free from anxiety and anger and shame. But I, I, I don't even know what a life would be like without grief. And so part of our practice is is actually developing the kind of confidence, the courage in our own heart to grieve. And this, sometimes it feels like, yeah, grieving is an individual act, but it's also, it sometimes feels like a civic duty 
actually to be able to collectively grieve, to, to be able to look at our own history as a nation, to be able to grieve. And the failure to do that leads to this very fragile sense of, of self individually or fragile national identity yeah, when we can't actually grieve together. Thich Nhat Hanh said, um, this is 2005, a lecture I was at, or a day long or something, and he said, you know, he's talking about climate, he said, civilizations come and go, just like people. And at the time, he said, it's important for us to actually be able to grieve the end of our civilization if we're to, to mobilize to actually make a meaningful effort to ensure a habitable planet. How, whatever the time scale is, yeah, the encouragement was to actually to grieve the possibility of the, the coming and going of civilization. Now, uh, this leads us into the poignancy of whatever time we have, the goodness of whatever's here. This is, um, this is Catherine Schultz, um, who uh, uh, in, in an article, the piece she wrote about the death of her father uh, when things go missing in the, in the New Yorker a couple of years ago. And she's sort of playing with this language of, of, um, of losing, losing something trivial, losing keys, losing one's father. And she, uh, she concludes the piece with, with, with this very um, yeah, helpful. So she says, it's breathtaking, the extinguishing of consciousness Yet that loss too, our own ultimate unbeing, is dwarfed by the grander scheme. When we're experiencing it, loss often feels like an anomaly, a disruption in the usual order of things. In fact, though, it's the usual order of things. Entropy, mortality, extinction, the entire plan of the universe consists of losing and life amounts to a reverse savings account in which we are eventually robbed of everything. Our dreams and plans and jobs and knees and backs and memories, the childhood friend, the husband of 50 years, the father of forever, the keys to the house, the keys to the car, the keys to the kingdom, the kingdom itself, sooner or later, all of it drifts into the valley of lost things. There's precious little solace for this and zero redress. We'll lose everything in the end. But why should that matter so much? By definition, we do not live in the end. We live all along the way. The smitten lovers who marvel every day at the miracle of having met each other are right. It is the finding that is astonishing. You meet a stranger passing through your own town and know within days you'll marry them. You lose your job at 55 and shock yourself by finding a new calling 10 years later. You have a thought and find the words. You face a crisis and find your courage. All of this is made more precious, not less, by its impermanence. No matter what goes missing, the wallet or the father, the lessons are the same. Disappearance reminds us to notice, transience to cherish, fragility to defend. Loss is a kind of external conscience urging us to make better use of our finite days. As Whitman knew, our brief crossing is best spent attending to all that we see, honoring what we find noble, denouncing what we cannot abide, recognizing 
that we are inseparably connected to all of it, including what is not yet upon us, including what is already gone. We are here to keep watch, not to keep. Here to keep watch, not to keep. If there had to be a kind of mantra of Dharma practice, it might be something like that. Yeah. When I was doing the uh, the year to live practice, uh, part of what struck me was the kind of multi-layered mechanisms of denial that as I would moving into this, these reflections, these practices, it felt like, um, oh, oh, now I'm actually opening to my mortality. And then I would recognize like no there's still a part you know the next month it's like no there's still a part of me holding out yeah freud said like in in you know something like in our unconscious everyone thinks of themselves as immortal yeah the kind of almost unimaginability of our own death in some ways it's very easy to understand in other ways, there's a piece of the mind that, for which it is almost unimaginable. But in the Buddhist tradition, it's like we, there are costs to not imagining it. And so um, there's a body of of um, research literature t- called terror, terror management theory, not, not terror as in terrorism or something, but, um, but that comes out of certain existential um, writers and that postulates the fact that we actually can, that we can consider our death, that we're sophisticated enough creatures to consider our death, and yet we have like this the the universal instinct towards self-preservation that this actually creates uh, a certain kind of anxiety and much of our life and our energy is directed towards managing and warding off this anxiety sometimes in a literal kind of way of believing in an afterlife or reincarnation or something and then other times, this is a more, more insidious way, in a, a kind of symbolic immortality where we actually become almost pathologically invested in our identities because this is a kind of way, a symbolic way of living on. And so it's like, I'm a Buddhist. Or I'm an American, or I'm a, it's my, you know, it's my achievements or my children or my something. But there's like some, there's some way in which we think about um, uh, this kind of symbolic immortality as a, as a way of managing this kind of anxiety. And there is like some interesting data, like when you make mortality salient, when you put that in somebody's mind in, in experiments or something, especially when it's not conscious, yeah? So if you do it consciously, it's, there, there aren't real effects. But if you do it, if you just prime somebody to actually think about their own death, then there are like a cascade of some kind of negative effects like more authoritarian and more willing to clinging more deeply to one's worldview more prejudice and in-group out-group bias yeah because the sense of like 
in in some ways as the theory goes it's like the identity is threatened and so you kind of double down to say like no this is me i'm an american yeah so there are negative effects but on the other hand um there may be uh pro-social effects too right um Teacher Norman Fisher said um, after the death of a very dear friend of his, um, says, when someone you love is gone, that person can't do anything anymore. This means you have to do something or that you have to do something differently. Somehow you who are connected to that person have to do what they can no longer do. You have to ask yourself, now that this has happened, what will I do? What will I do in place of my friend? And um, I grew up in, in here in New York, but I was out in California in 2001, but um, family was, was still was here in New York. and. Um, and there was something about about September 11th that um, that um, yeah, in some ways I was blessed that I I got to that age without this realization. But the, uh, the realization was something like, oh, you know, I kind of been thinking that if I just did things right and followed the rules, something was taking care of me. Yeah. And I didn't believe, it wasn't a theistic belief or something, but it was just a sense of like protection. And somehow those buildings just, it just shattered the sense that there's some assurance to my life. Yeah. And, and yet this need not actually give rise to to, to pain. So there's an exchange between Bill Moyers and Pema Chodron in the aftermath. Moyers says, on almost any day, well, we could say every day in New York, you can experience random acts of kindness. But after 9-11, kindness seemed to be everyone's daily behavior. I saw so much kindness. And then, of course, it didn't take too long for it to disappear. And Pema responds, okay, so this is like the big view of what happens with individuals. And what we saw in New York, and you see uh, with people who are in those states, that it's a softness, a kindness. It's as people said during those days in New York, it's the only thing that makes sense. And then what happens? The habit comes back. Because basically the kindness comes out of not being able to escape from groundlessness. And then everyone's in the same situation. You're all groundless together. And the only thing that makes sense is kindness. From what I can tell, groundlessness will make us love or hate. Will make us, will open us up in this like vast way, or will lead us to double down and cling more deeply. And part of our Buddhist training is actually learning to use those experiences of groundlessness, those moments whatever they may be, when the ego is all out of moves, to soften, to, to actually love. In this, this um, uh, say, say a few, about 10 minutes to finish. Um, in this, um, uh, 
this this literature unlike um the effects of um the effects of mortality on on our minds like part of actually part of what they suggest is that our, our very sense of self-esteem is connected and in some ways a defense against mortality and that that has a very interesting parallels with with the buddha buddhist teachings on self and self-cherishing and um, the buddha said that um we're we're always becoming something other this is this is becoming it says there's a craving for becoming which in this sense is a, is a, a craving to be born in the next moment as something bhava tanha and at some point in in the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, the, the, there's this line like Nibbana, uh, the highest happiness, freedom, cessation. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. That sense of like, on the grand scale, becoming someone, being somebody developing an identity, acquiring new identities, um, all the ways we kind of just, uh, we're just like almost constantly hoping to land comfortably in an identity and it never really happens. And at the micro level, that sense of just like leaning forward, just just a a little moment. We take this breath, but we're we're just waiting on the next one, or we're tr we're trying to acquire something from this breath. Yeah, and part of what death actually allows us to do is to consider what the moment would feel like were it futureless. Yeah. Like, if we were to live just this moment, yeah, which is a question that Nietzsche asks and others, it's like, if it were just this, how deeply might we let go? how vast might the mind become if we actually did not have to keep track of the threats and opportunities required for our own survival. That kind of, it, it, the more I practice, the more reverence I have for like the beauty, the innocence of the wish to stay alive and just how profoundly that can actually undercut our happiness. It's like evolution did not have our happiness at like the top of its to-do list, you know, right? These like very deep forces, but it's worth actually considering. And in some ways in Dharma practice, we are practicing surrendering into the present moment as if there is no future. Yeah. And from a Buddhist perspective, we usually think of the self as the kind of cause of things. We cause things, we do things, we make choices. But it, from the, the Buddhist psychology, the self is less of a cause and more of an effect. The self is an effect. And the effect of what? I might say uh, fear. Yeah. And maybe you actually notice this. The more safe you actually feel in any moment in a sit, the more vague and distant and porous the self becomes. 
Part of our practice is actually the learning to feel like we cannot be ambushed by our own inner material, to come to feel like our inner life is more and more safe. Right? And then maybe there's a loud noise or something happens and immediately we're jolted back into that mode of tracking safety, of tracking threat and opportunity and pleasure and pain and the future and desire. And so death actually provides this kind of invitation to, uh, to consider what, what, what the heart would do if it were just this. And time marches on, karma marches on, but actually to, to, um, to surrender in that way, um, it's, it's in a sense, it's a way of practicing dying. As we get deeper into practice, it's like we're, we're, we're learning to let go, to relinquish control in such a deep way. We're learning actually to surrender to the flows of pleasure and pain. We're learning to, um, to not hold on to need to be oriented at all. And as we do this, it's like there's less and less of the world there. The world becomes more and more faint. We become more and more faint. Yeah. In some ways, practice makes life so vivid. And in some ways, as we actually deepen, it's like the, the burden on the mind of the world of self, it just starts to fall away more and more profoundly. And that's not to deny there's a world or a self or something like this, but we actually uh, practice, it's, it's in the language, it gets metaphysical, it's called the deathless, but in a certain sense, it's practicing death. less and less and less of our life, all of it surrendered to the moment. Um, so, um, let me just uh, close with, um, this is, um, from the Terigata, the, the kind of early enlightenment poems of, uh, of Buddhist nuns, early, early Buddhist nuns. And there's a, a new, new translation that um, is quite, quite beautiful. And so this is, um, this is a nun, and, and the title of the poem is just by their, their name, Mita, which is, is the Pali for, for friend. And, um, and these poems are a kind of like tale of waking up, a tale of spiritual fruition of some kind. And this, this one quite struck me. She writes, um, full of trust you left home and soon learned to walk the path making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say, with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. So, moment, we'll have a closing announcement from Kathy, but um, just want to um, 
Yeah, thank you for your your attention and engaging with this. And um, uh, I'll I'll hang around for a bit if you have if you uh, want to talk. Um, conversational topics that would delight me include your life, <laughs> Dharma questions. State of the the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry's rehabilitation, and Fleabag season two. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.